You are listening to the Monocle Daily, first broadcast on the 27th of October 2022 on Monocle 24. A junior Russian official threatens the shooting down of commercial satellites while Russia's most senior official reprises his grievances at length. China's President Xi Jinping tentatively offers a handshake across the Pacific, or does he? And is Qatar about to discover that being the focus of global attention is a mixed blessing? I'm Andrew Muller. The Monocle Daily starts now. Hello and welcome to the Monocle Daily, coming to you from our studios here at Midori House in London. I'm Andrew Muller. My guests Sarah Churchwell and Somnath Batabayal will discuss all the day's big stories. Plus, we'll get the latest from Carlotta Ribello in Kiev and we'll have Henry Rhys Sheridan's latest letter from New York City. Stay tuned. All that and more coming up right here on the Monocle Daily. This is the Monocle Daily. I'm Andrew Muller and I'm joined today by Sarah Churchwell, Professor of American Literature at London's School of Advanced Study and by Somnath Batabayal, Lecturer in Media and Development and International Journalisms at SOAS. Hello to you both. Hello. Hello. Uh, before we push on with the show proper, this is that brief bit at the top where we allow the guests to incarnate themselves as barrow-pushing East End market traders announcing their wares to sell. Um, Sarah, you have a book out. <laughs> I do have a book out. I wrote a book called The Wrath to Come that came out this summer, which is about how Gone with the Wind explains everything that's happening in America right now. See, I still, to my shame, have not read that. It is on my list. I could show you my, my Amazon queue to um, to prove that. But well, I'm happy to answer any questions you have about it once you have read it. I, <laughs> Next I, time, right? I, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I, I will get there. Uh, and and Somnath, you could, you, we're going to allow you one more time to swank about your TV series. Thank you. Um, I wrote a book called The Price You Pay back in 2013, and um, it's published by HarperCollins, and a television OTP platform, rather, has mm. picked it up and it's being made into eight-part series, which is quite nice. Uh, after six years or seven years, it kind of is re- resurrected. And um, I have been roped in as for the past month or two to write the dialogues mm-hmm. of that uh, story. And I'm finding that it doesn't resemble my book at all. <laughs> when I asked if this is my book, they said yes, but after the payment has been made to you. <laughs> I am just going to pause my incandescent envy sufficiently to ask, do do we know when this is going to be on screens yet? Uh, It's going on floor next month. The shooting starts hopefully by April and next year. That's, well, well that's, that's like months more anticipatory plugs you can look forward to. <laughs> yes, I'm just... <laughs> that, 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 our, our, our listeners must be thrilled already. Um, we are going to start today's show proper with an update from Kiev, from where we are joined by Monocle 24's Carlotta Ribello. Uh, Carlotta, haven't spoken to you in hours. Um, what have you been up to since the briefing about six hours ago? Hi, Andrew. Yeah, it's been a few hours. Um, One of the things I did this afternoon, uh, there was a press conference uh, by the chief state inspector for nuclear and radiation safety of Ukraine. And this is, of course, ahead of the visit by the International Energy Agency visiting some of the sites uh, still on um, the, um, uh, following the the news from Moscow that they said the Ukraine was preparing to um, launch a dirty bomb. Um, today's statement by Ole Korhihov, the acting head of state for the Nuclear Regulatory Inspectorate, 
said that uh, that statement is fake, uh, that the two power facilities quoted by Moscow have been inspected just in the last month uh, by the agency and did not reveal any prohibited activities. Now, this is what the West has been saying, that the threats that at Moscow said that Russia, uh, that Ukraine was ready to deploy a dirty bomb um, were fake, but to actually have someone from the energy agency corroborating those facts is really important here on the ground. Uh, people were really expecting this press conference to kind of vindicate Ukraine's position. Uh, it is especially important in the light of what President Vladimir Putin had to say earlier today. We will be discussing uh, his speech with the guests later in the show, but has there been any response to that that you've noticed in Kiev or have people at this point more or less stopped listening to him? Um, they more or less have stopped listening, if I'm truthful, uh, at least with the people that I was with as the speech was going on. I mentioned it and was met with um, uh, an eye roll, let's put it that way. Uh, one thing that everyone agreed with Putin was his warning that um, the world is facing one of the most dangerous decades ahead since, the world, since world War II. Um, the only difference is that they see him very much as the culprit of that, which I don't think it's the meaning that he was implying in his statement. You have had a few hours now to get a sense of what Kiev feels like, perhaps measured against your previous visit in the summer. Um, cities during wartime are weird things. There are moments when they can feel just bizarrely normal. Uh, there are moments when they can feel just incredibly weird and they can change from one to the other very quickly. What's Kiev been like today? Does it still just seem like a city that is trying to live some semblance of normal life? Absolutely. And it's that duality that still gets me the same way it stuck with me when I came here back in July. Uh, when I checked into my hotel this morning at around midday local time, uh, immediately the first air raid siren since my arrival went off. Um, and learning from past experience, you just look out to the streets and see what people are doing. No one was going in. So I was like, maybe I don't need to go to the shelter this time. But having just arrived and wanting to play it safe, I did go down at the bomb shelter here in the hotel. And it was mostly us, foreign journalists, lasted 30 minutes. We came out and life carried on as normal. Um, I am here to report as well for our magazine, for Monocle magazine. And I went to meet our photographer um, just a, a few hours ago. And we met at the cafe and it was the end of the day people were having some drinks and life seemed absolutely normal by the time i walked back to my hotel it was dark and it was really dark because street lamps are off and it's exactly what you said um it changes from a city that seems normal to suddenly a reminder that you're at war and you have to walk around in parts of kiev with the light from your phone on because they are trying to spare the electricity grid. They don't know what might happen. Uh, a lot of the power stations have been hit uh, around 45% in the country. So sparing energy is vital. And suddenly you go from being at a cafe, at a bar where people finishing work are meeting up, having you know pizzas and drinking with their friends to then being reminded that you need to get home now. You need a light and there's a curfew in place.
Carlotta Rebello in Kiev, thank you very much for joining us. Well, let's bring Somnath and Sarah back in now. And as we were just discussing, Russian President Vladimir Putin spoke earlier today in Moscow at the annual Valdai Discussion Club at Wingding. His address was the by now familiar mix of passive-aggressive moping and self-pitying whining, including quite a long stretch of wanging on about cancel culture like that uncle of yours on Facebook. As such, it did not greatly enlarge our understanding of anything much. Possibly more pertinent are remarks by Konstantin Vorontsov, a senior Russian foreign ministry official, to the effect that Russia could take matters into orbit. His suggestion was that Western commercial satellites could be seen by Moscow as legitimate targets. Um, Sarah, does this sound like a serious threat or relatively minor functionary as these things go? He is Deputy Director of the Department for Non-Proliferation and Arms Control, seeing, <laughs> seeing a chance to get himself on television and or discussed on prestigious current affairs fora such as this. Yeah, I feel like he needs to work on the non-proliferation part if that's, um, if that's the job description. I mean, look, I mean, it, he, he's on the deputy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's going to get a promotion. So look, I think that, you know, it's, it does sound like, you know, pretty familiar uh, saber-rattling at this stage. Um, you know, there have been a lot of empty threats and a lot of crying wolf that we've been listening to. That said, um, you know, Russia has proved itself perfectly willing uh, on occasion to hit commercial targets and indeed to suddenly, you know, invade a sovereign territory, for example. Mm. So I think, you know, and given that they were, you know, downing flights, not to commercial airliners not too long ago, I think that, you know, we need to, um, they simply can't be trusted to act as, uh, you know, as, as rational international you know, collaborators or partners at this stage. And so I think that we have to take every threat with, if it, this may sound ridiculous, but I think it's the only way to handle it is to take it both with a grain of salt and yet, you know, kind of prepare for the worst and, and you know, hope for the best. But know that they are at this point capable of almost anything. Is that likely to be their, their you know, first point of retaliation? I shouldn't have thought so. It seems, it seems you know, pretty far-fetched to me, but, you know, what do I know? I mean, I don't pretend to know what, what kind of crazy things these guys would get up to. Uh, Somnath, how plausible does it seem to you? Because it, it struck me, at least, though though it does seem strangely fantastic, the idea of bringing down commercial satellites, and by fantastic, I don't doubt that it's technically possible. It just seems like it would be quite the thing to do, but it would seem kind of of a piece would it not, with recent, well, Russia denies everything, but there has been this strange proliferation of undersea cables being cut across the Mediterranean uh, and the one that linked Shetland uh, to the rest of the United Kingdom. Now, that that could be a complete happenstance. Russia could have had absolutely nothing to do with it, but also perhaps not. Yeah, I mean, and Russia definitely has the capacity to do so. In 2021, it downed one of its own satellites. Mm. I mean, we can't forget that they were the first one to put a satellite in space. Uh, Yuri Gagarin was the first man who went into space. So they definitely have capacity and imagination. And I doubt that uh, even a minor Russian official uh, can make such a large claim without any kind of state backing. You know, so at this point, as you said, Sarah, I take things very seriously, what they might do and what they might not do. Uh, so you think maybe that having this statement put out there by a relatively minor functionary gives it a kind of it, it gives it an air of deniability, but you've put the thought out there. Absolutely, and in a post uh, General Surovikin, I mean, I never get his name right, Surovikin's appointment, uh, the kind of the way they have gone after infrastructures and mm. hitting power stations, there's been a real escalation in the last couple of months. So, you know, I'm I'm hoping that they're bluffing. Most the entire world hopes they're bluffing, but 
they have the capacity and the imagination and the brutality. Uh, Sarah, as I was glibly summarising a short while ago, most of Putin's speech uh, today was pretty familiar and, to be honest, incredibly tedious. But a couple of phrases did leap out. One was, he said, the new centres of the global order, by which I presume he means Russia, and the West will have to begin a conversation about the future, the earlier, the better. Now, is he saying there, I do actually want to talk about this? Well, it sounds like it to a certain extent, right? But what he but what he keeps wanting I mean, he's trying to remake the global order. That's what we're seeing. And this this kind of, you know, endless mythologization and this this kind of mystical romantic idea that he has about Ukraine as being, you know, part of the mother Russia. Um that, that that's the order that he wants to remake. That's the part that I think that we absolutely probably did underestimate previously and we mm. did so quite wrongly, um, obviously. So I think, you know, he still very much wants to to insist that his 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 kind of, you know, um, megalomaniac version of what he thinks, you know, Mother Russia is supposed to look like, that he wants the West to accommodate that. He wants them to acknowledge it. And, 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 and you know, getting minor functionaries to threaten, you know, to bringing down commercial satellites is of a piece with that. Whether people, t- whether he really intends the threat or not, it's all part of, of insisting that this vision of Russia needs to be taken seriously by his enemies and that he is, and that, and that he expects the West to, um, to help him, you know, to, 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 as we did with Crimea, basically to back down and, and, and let him have Ukraine. And I think that, that that's really where, what all of, all of these rhetorical gestures, these threats, everything that he's doing is all in the purpose of trying, it's like world building, you know, and that's what he's trying to do is to, um, is to make it true by saying it so and just trying to intimidate people and bully people into, uh, into kind of acknowledging his sovereign power here. Uh, Somnath, another thing he said, and this is his interpretation, I think, of how we got here, and I, I assume at this point he's talking about the early 21st century. He says, Russia said to the West, let's be friends, have dialogue and strengthen trust and peace, and then complained that we were completely sincere. What did we get in response? A no on every possible area of cooperation. Is, is that an entirely fair assessment of how things went down? So are you asking me to say that Putin, Putin is, is he fair in his assessment? No, <laughs> probably not. But he's been harking back quite a bit on history and he has been setting up you know, an alternate world order which is very different from the mm. uh, post-second, uh, you know, what happened post-second World War 1960s and 70s. He's been speaking of Asia coming up. He's talking about Africa and the Middle East. He's creating this alternate uh, powers as opposed to the West. So there's a kind of setting up this. What I found remarkable was how little of Ukraine was mentioned in, in, in his entire speech. There was very little conversation mm. around Ukraine. Um, historically, again, the nuclear threat is brought up. But again, he says America was the first one who used the nuclear weapons on Japan. So that threat remains. Um, he's wo- woven in history throughout, uh, irrationally at times. But uh, the claims that he has made against um, the U.S., for example, when he's speaking about bullying, uh, about trampling on national uh, national borders. There's, there's a pots and there, kettles there, there, thing there, 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 there. There's a story there which I can recognize. And, you know, mm. a slightly paranoid world leader can quite easily point uh, fingers at the West and the, and the entire colonial period, which he kept harking back on. So it... It's not nonsense. You know, this is this is a part of history which we have gone through. How he is interpreting it, and also the other thing being, just because it has happened historically, doesn't mean somebody has to retaliate that way. So that that's the other that we should have moved on. 
but that's how, but that's how disinformation works, isn't it? Is that is that it has that core of recognizable truth, and then it's all about distorting and projecting and um, and you know and rewriting history in all of those ways. But it always it you know that's you know you take that that bit of you can say that something like that really happened, and then of course, as you say, he, he's 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 projecting like crazy because he's doing just as you know he's also he's also not respecting territorial sovereignty. <laughs> I think we, we I think we can all yeah, we can yeah, all yeah. agree indeed, that. Indeed. <laughs> well, on the subject of superpowers attempting to redraw the world order to understate matters audaciously, reconciliation with the United States has not seemed a driving concern of Chinese President Xi Jinping in recent times. However, Chinese state media is today reporting a slight change of tune. Xi awarded a third term as General Secretary of the Chinese Communist Party just this past weekend, has suggested that China and the US must, quote, find ways to get along. He did indulge in a bit of pro forma harumphing about what he called foreign interference vis-a-vis Taiwan, but seemed suddenly very keen on mutual respect, peaceful coexistence, and so forth. Uh, Sarah, what do we think has brought this on? Well, I've been seeing, you know, I don't, I don't claim to have any great insight into Xi. You'll be disappointed to hear, but, um, <laughs> but what I've been uh, seeing that that I find plausible are um, are questions about whether, given uh, uh, China's, you know, lack of, shall we say, forthcomingness about the consequences of the pandemic for it, particularly economically, um, that you know, I've been seeing reports that it's that it's vastly overstating um, or you know, understating, as the case may be, um, the economic. Um, impacts that it's that it's seeing and trying very hard to you know sweep those under the rug, and it's hard it's hard to hear Xi say something like that and not conclude that there is some kind of economic necessity driving it and some kind of um, some kind of cover up um, happening here. So um, yeah, because it's very much an about face, isn't it? And um, and so for them suddenly to be to be seeking economic partnership and and to be you know talking about um, oh these years of friendship and and collaboration. Um, you know, it it certainly sounds as if he's he's selling suddenly instead of buying. Uh, Somnath, the rhetoric was neither soaring nor euphonious, so I will keep this excerpt short. But he was keen on, as he put it, strengthening communication and cooperation between China and the US, which will help to increase global stability and certainty and promote world peace and development, which all sounds tremendous, but would mean what in practice, do we think? Gosh, that's a big, <laughs> that's a big question. Uh, look, I mean, just to keep it in a slightly uh, a, a framework, uh, one one thing is for sure that now that he has secured a third term and mm. his domestic affairs are settled, he also wants to be known as a statesman. Mm. You know, of the sta- he's a he's a global leader. He wants to be acknowledged, and Biden's immediate response to the speech makes him, you know, an equal. Mm. So that is part of the. Uh, I mean, I, I agree with the um, with what Sarah just said that you know economic problems at home, wars, energy crisis, all of that plays a role. But being in a comfortable space, domestic politically uh, in China, it allows him now to project a world leader-like stature, which I think is what China is about. Uh, this is not to discount what you just said, Sarah. That. The global situation is such that China would want peace. You know, it's for the last five to seven years, if we see what they have been doing, they've been teasing, they have been uh, pushing buttons everywhere. Now, perhaps now is a time to calm calm the uh, political scenario, especially with the U.S. Taiwan was a flashpoint moment when uh, Nancy Pelosi went. 
for, for years, China and U.S. had accommodated each other on Taiwan, that U.S. will not recognize it and China will not invade it. Suddenly that seemed to have you know, been pushed. Mm. But I think it's a scaling back. While the Chinese president, want, the premier wants to establish himself as a leader on equal partnership with the U.S., well, Sarah, at which point I will wheel in my own <clears throat> doubtless barely informed pet theory, which is that China acts quite frequently by regarding what the Soviet Union slash Russia did and then trying to do more or less the opposite, because the Soviet Union allowed itself to be drawn into an existential struggle with the United States. That's what the Cold War was. One had to defeat the other, and the Soviet Union lost. Um does Xi think, or do you think Xi thinks, that this superpower rivalry can actually be managed indefinitely without anybody necessarily having to destroy and or undermine the other? Well, I think I would just frame it slightly differently. And I was going to say something quite quite similar, which is that I think that, you know, Putin going rogue in the way that he has mm. and suddenly being, you know, ostracized by the international community um, gives Xi a different position to be statesmanlike in the way that we were just saying, but also, you know, to recognize recognize that then that you know this is an opportunity for China to step up and to say no we're going to be the dominant Asian partner but, but uh, not just not just you know in terms of trade as it has been for some time but to say politically we want to be the leader that you talk to we are the people who are determining what the political status quo is in Asia and that is no longer Russia Putin has ruled himself out of that well, let's look now at the United Kingdom, where Rishi Sunak remains Prime Minister as of this broadcast. Uh, we spoke for 24 whole hours. <clears throat> yeah, we, 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 we did speak earlier this week about the significance to the United Kingdom of the UK's first Prime Minister of Asian descent and first Hindu Prime Minister, neither of which is small change. However, let's look now at what Sunak's premiership, assuming he gets a longer run at it than his predecessor, might mean for the UK on the world stage. Um, Somnath, another first. He is I'm sure, the first UK Prime Minister whose first call to a foreign leader was to the President of Ukraine. What does that tell us? That uh, hopefully that the UK is serious mm. about their commitment to Ukraine. I, I really hope that this was a genuine call and not just another uh, photo or political um, uh, statement being put out. Uh, it, does, it does show that, you know, a serious maturity and I, I, you know, much sceptical that I am of uh, any very multimillionaire Tory becoming prime minister. <laughs> this was a good call, and and deserve and it deserves the accolades that um, I think it, it should get. And it also follows up on what Boris Johnson has said. Mm. But having said that, um, on the economic front, he's not committing to scaling up defense expenditure, which um, you know, uh, given the economic pressures, I can understand. But if you are serious about confronting the threat that Putin puts up, you have to be also seri uh, serious about how are you going to tackle it and how are you going to help. Um, Sarah, the UK Prime Minister's first call is usually to the US President, and Joe Biden, who has hopefully by now actually learnt Rishi Sunak's <laughs> name, uh, has, has, now, has now spoken to him. Uh, they have talked, they've released communiques, wheeling out the usual special relationship yada yada stuff. Um, do we think, assuming uh, Rishi Sunak will wave through Joe Biden's first attempt to pronounce Rishi Sunak, uh, that the UK-US relationship is going to change in the least? Uh, no, I don't think it's going to change very much at all. I think that um, it has already been uh, destabilized by um, by the shocks of Brexit and by the um, not just the instability of um, 
of the British government over the last few years, but over its frank unreliability. I mean, it, mm. it has become an unreliable player in the on the international stage, and that's just a fact, whether people like it or not. And in particular, I think that it is, um, you know, that's going to play out over the question of Ireland in the Biden administration without any question whatsoever. And Sunak has said he is going to continue to pursue the same line about the Northern Irish Protocol. And if he doesn't change that position, then the Biden administration will be no friend of his, because both Biden and Nancy Pelosi have made extremely clear that they will not be party to anything that jeopardizes the Good Friday Agreement. Biden identifies as Irish, right? He doesn't even identify as Irish-American. The man will introduce himself by saying, I'm Irish, right? I I, I, I did actually look into this because I was curious, and it turns out that if that's how you measure these things, I am precisely twice the Irishman Joe Biden (laughs) is. If I went around at home where I come from announcing myself as Irish or Irish-Australian, people would think I had lost my mind. Indeed. It's a very American thing, obviously. I have spoken to plenty of Irish people who find it endearing. So we're going to hope that most of them feel that way about it. But the fact of the matter is, is that that's how Biden looks at it. And that's the point, is that he is not going to jeopardize the Good Friday Agreement on his watch. And he will do everything within his power, which, let's face it, is considerable, to um, to ensure that the Good Friday Agreement is, you know, remains intact. And rightly so, you know, um, in, certainly in my view. So, you know, we can, you know, we can make our jokes about him getting Sunak's name wrong, but it, but it's, you know, it's indicative and it's arguably even a little bit savvy, you know? I mean, if we want, because everybody likes the, blum, you know, blundering Biden jokes and stuff. But to come in there and put him in his place and say, I don't even know who you are. <laughs> I'm the president of the United States and I couldn't even be bothered to get your name right because that's how insignificant you are to me right now. It's certainly a message that was sent, you know, deliberately or no. That is the message that came across. So, you know, Sunak needs to be, he needs to be, um, he needs to be very, very careful here about the kind of the ways in which the the stuff that plays politically well to the you know to the hard right to, you know domestically is going to play very very badly with important partners like the U.S. and he's going to have to to navigate a very fine line um, and at, you know I think that they will comparatively certainly the Biden administration will see Sunak as as a comparatively comparatively safe pair of hands I think as everybody does after the Truss and Quartang debacle so they will recognize that he's much more of a pragmatist less of an ideologue but. But he has, but he has, um, you know, blown enough of those ideological Brexit dog whistles, and particularly around the Irish question. But there are others um, that I think that you know everybody's still going to be watching him very warily, and he's going to need to make friends if if he wants to um, if he wants to position himself in those kinds of statesmanlike ways that we were talking about. Uh, I'm, I'm sure the American administration, and indeed all other American administrations, would see one of those inflatable wavy arm men from a disreputable garage forecourt as a relatively safe pair of hands compared to what we've had recently. Um, But Somnath, another relationship I want to talk about briefly, because we did discuss this on Tuesday, uh, will of course be the relationship that the UK will have uh, with India. Um, And obviously Rishi Sunak is of Indian descent. We were talking on Tuesday about the fact that his elevation to Downing Street had occasioned great excitement in India, where he suddenly has several hundred thousand cousins. Um, But but is it going to permit any great recalibration or progress in that relationship? Or, and I think this was a a theory you floated on Tuesday, keeping Suella Braverman as Home Secretary may have offset any potential (laughs) advantage. Uh, so, first to dispel the myth, his Indian origins are very tenuous again. You know, uh, his, his parents were, in fact, born in British East Africa. Yes, and his grandfather was born in Gujranwala, which is now in Pakistan. 
as I said, Indians get excited too easily. <laughs> too easily. There's not much there. There's a bit, there's a bit of an India-Ireland crossover there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The other thing is, uh, what you said, Sarah, is England is, the UK is quite insignificant as far as world trade goes. And mm. even in India, you know, they, they would much rather look at EU than prioritizing a deal with UK. And that is what has happened. And UK keep on, uh, keeps on talking about the historic ties. It's, I, I would rather the UK did not remind the UK of the historic <laughs> ties in its 400 years of slavery and colonialism. So in those regards, um, I don't, uh, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tough sell. Mm. But yes, uh, Sunak is... He, a, he's going to have to play a lot of cricket when he goes there, isn't uh, he? And I have just learned that he wanted to play, go back home and play for his Yorkshire uh, village club cricket once he lost his, uh, the leadership r uh, race. Uh, but that's out again. But, but <laughs> his, um, as uh, India has been saying, he's of Hindu origin, um, mm -hmm. might just, you know, um, cast a spell on our right-wing Hindu government. Um, I'm sure the first family of Bangalore, the Narayan Muthis, have a lot of clout. And again, a lot of lobbying will go on. The, so those the, things, These are his in-laws? These are his in-laws, yes. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, you know, um, um, extremely respected in India, uh, I must say. Um, so... There will be movements, there will be personal touches to all of this. But um, India will, I do not think, necessarily prioritise uh, UK to get a deal through. Uh, just one final thing on Rishi Sunak and the global stage, Sarah, because it's a development today which may or may not tell us something uh, about his priorities. He has announced today that he is not attending COP27, and that right there is a shift from uh, his predecessor, Boris Johnson, though granted he didn't have as far to go uh, to get to COP26. But Johnson was uh, clearly, and I think quite genuinely, an enthusiast uh, for the whole COP thing, and now uh, Sunak is announcing he's got better things to do. Yeah. I mean, look, I think that, you know, he is clearly trying to um, to pander to some of his predecessors' uh, um, policies. I mean, okay, so he said that he'll stop the fracking, but then he still there still needs to be this, um, you know, uh, uh, acknowledgement of the of the climate skeptics, um, you know, in the in the ERG and in the in the hard right of the party, and um, and that's the that's the clearly the the kind of political transaction that he's decided to make. It is, in the view, I think, of rational people, an extremely dangerous one. It's certainly on fortunate for the, for the UK to be to be stepping back from such an important commitment you know in the in the light of the of the kinds of catastrophes and tragedies that we've been looking at all year i mean to just pretend that it isn't happening um, is just extraordinary from the leader of a country that keeps insisting that you know that it punches above its weight and it's a major mm. international player and stuff well then actually lead from the front and that is precisely what's not happening and it it really is a shame and it's a and it is a missed opportunity that he would and you know being touted as the more pragmatic candidate to not just say, you know what, this is the situation that we're in. And I know the hard right of my party doesn't want to hear it, but this is this is the reality and this is what we need to do. And he's simply not, he's all very clearly, you know, not going to show that kind of leadership and, and we shouldn't look to him for it. Obviously, he's made that clear. Well, let's look now at Qatar, which the whole world is about to do, because it is now just 24 days until the 2022 World Cup kicks off with what will doubtless be an absolute barn burner between Qatar and Ecuador cannot wait. Uh, more pertinently to the ensuing item, it is circa 26 days until Australia begin their campaign with a banker 4-0 win against France. Australia's Socceroos, that is the team's actual name, have struck an even earlier blow, however, releasing a video gently suggesting that there might be one or two aspects of its domestic arrangements that Qatar could take a look at. We have learned the decision to host the World Cup in Qatar 
which resulted in the suffering and in the harm of countless of our fellow workers. These migrant workers who have suffered are not just numbers. Like the migrants that have shaped our country and our football, they possess the same courage and determination to build a better life. As players, we fully support the rights of the LGBTI plus people. But in Qatar, people are not free to love the person that they choose. Addressing these issues is not easy and we do not have all the answers. We stand with FIFPRO, the Building and Woodworkers International and the International Trade Union Confederation seeking to embed reforms and establish a lasting legacy in Qatar. This must include establishing a migrant resource centre, effective remedy for those who have been denied their rights, and the decriminalisation of all same-sex relationships. These are the basic rights that should be afforded to all and will ensure continued progress in Qatar. This is how we can ensure a legacy that goes well beyond the final whistle of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. One that football can truly be proud of. One that football can truly be proud of. One that football can be truly proud of. One that football can truly be proud of. One that football can truly be proud of. Australia's Socceroos there guaranteeing themselves a very long wait for their bags at Doha Airport. Um, Somnath, do you think something like that does have an impact and perhaps more pertinently bringing some of that attitude to Qatar? And, I mean, respectfully, I think they're actually making their point. Undoubtedly, it's a very powerful statement and good on them that they have made it. You know, unlike the UK uh, Minister Cleverly, who just said, don't do anything too disrespectful, to which I think Gary Lineker for once had a brilliant report saying that uh, nothing too gay is it. <laughs> so, you know, so, <laughs> so there's a good, clever exchange. But, you know, um, kudos to them. Again, very well done. I hope other countries and other teams join in. And you cannot be mealy-mouthed about this. Either you go quietly or you say something strong, and the Australian soccer team has done that. It's a strange one, Sarah, and it's a, it's a eternally roiling debate because, for a start, I think it's it's obviously pretty unfair to dump all this stuff on football players who are, <clears throat> and I did quite like that bit in that statement where they, I think they basically said, we are just football players, we don't know everything. Uh, but they obviously have an enormous prominence, especially when there's a World Cup. And what is actually, if, if they want to try and get these, these issues discussed, what is the more productive thing for them to do? Is it to go and use that platform to make their case, or would it have been just to say, we're not playing in Qatar? Well, I think that's always the, the, the question, isn't it? Is, is do you play along and then try to leverage from within, or do you you know absolutely mm. refuse to engage and, and to boycott? I tend to think myself that boycotting is a more um, powerful response, because the fact of the matter is, is that you can put all the moral pressure that you want onto onto a regime that you know that, that this is this is a very clear commercial transaction we understand the terms of it there was a great outcry of course when Qatar was selected in the first place and the questions around corruption so sure to stand up and say we'd like some good to come of this incredibly corrupt situation mm. is a nice thing to say but at the end of the day you're still in my view and I say this just as an individual but at that point in my view you're still participating in a corrupt you know transaction and um and and but yes it's a better statement than cleverly's I'm going to go with that. You know, the, the man who, who eternally disproves nominative determinism. Um, I mean, you know, to say, you know, go, but just, you know, don't do anything I wouldn't do um, is, um, is, is you know, really leading from behind. So at least they're, at least they're trying to, to, to um, use the platform, you know, to, 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 
create some leverage. But, you know, Qatar is under no obligation to do this. And is this is an ad going to create moral pressure on them to treat their migrant workers better? I'm I I hate to sound cynical, but I very much doubt it. I mean, all situations on that are, of course, different. And it is very hard to know what will have an impact and what will not. But it is, of course, rather bleakly worth remembering that at the same time Qatar was granted this World Cup, Russia was granted the 2018 World Cup. And the fact of Russia hosting the World Cup and the attendant attention on Russia at the time did not, as we have learned, significantly improve Russia's behaviour. <laughs> yeah, we saw that. But, you know, uh, the, the question is that whether, uh, I mean, I think, uh, sorry, bring up an important point that whether you should have just boycotted or taken part in the Australian team boycotting it perhaps also wouldn't have had much effect. You know, the, 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 the Somnath, what, what kind of World Cup would it even be if Australia <laughs> so were, were not competing? They, they would clearly have had they would clearly have had no choice but to call for the whole thing off. Whoever ended up winning it would just have had an asterisk next to that for their entire lives because if, if Australia wasn't there, is it really a World Cup? I think my it? time is up anyway. <laughs> You've spoken over it, Andrew. <laughs> no, but seriously. Um, Seriously, the fact that teams speak up and take positions is important. I think, again, sorry, Australian <laughs> team just sitting out and not going in and not engaging perhaps wouldn't have provided a reaction or we wouldn't have been speaking about it today. So, the, and these days, conversation spreads very quickly. Uh, other teams might speak, might pick it up. Now, Qatar is the third largest has the third largest gas uh, under its soil. Mm-hmm. So therefore, we know how countries behave uh, when there is natural reserves and gas. So international pressure on Qatar won't happen. Qatar probably will not treat their migrant workers any better, but not speaking about it also will not help. And and sports personalities are the... Uh, uh, sports, films, writers... Um, these are people who can, and um, I'm glad they are. Uh, they do have uh, individual athletes, Sarah, enormous uh, influences. As, as we saw from the, the England team here uh, at the most recent men's uh, European football championships, taking a stand on various things, and indeed uh, so did the England women. Um, taking a stand was exactly the wrong phrase because what they were doing was, was, was taking a knee. And they, they do... I mean, do you get the sense that this generation of athletes understand all that stuff a bit better and understand their position uh, more solidly than perhaps athletes of previous generations might have because they're they're so instantly wired in and so plugged into everything and they can instantly reach millions of people by pulling a phone out of their pocket in a way that the footballers of 30 or 40 years ago could not have. Yeah, absolutely. And I think think it's a a very important point. And, and, you know, these people, they are given an enormous amount of power um, Mm. and influence and, you know, not necessarily direct political power, but indirect influence. Yes, an enormous amount. And people do listen to them and people do follow their leads, and and they absolutely can change minds. And you know, you mentioned the the women's football team taking the knee, and of course that comes directly from an American, you know, a single mm. American football player, Colin Kaepernick, who who you know um, continue, and he still is not hired. I mean, he basically gave up his career for this. So a single influential player can, in fact, um, you know, really change a political conversation and and begin a movement. And this is a kind of Greta Thunberg way of thinking about it. You know, one small individual can lead a movement, can spark, um, you know. 
know, real political awareness. So I absolutely agree that they should be, if they are going, they should be using their platform to do good, absolutely, and engaging with the issues. And that the and that everybody needs to, that everybody who has a platform needs to see, you know, in what ways they can try to, you know, use that in constructive ways and not merely in, you know, self-enriching ways, um, which is, you know, the, the, the easy fallback. So absolutely, I say good on them. You know, I just think I'm not sure to work, but I'm glad they've tried. Sarah Churchwell and Somnath Batabayal, thank you both for joining us today. Finally, on today's show, time for Henry Rees Sheridan's letter from New York City. I am humbled and honoured to have the support of my parliamentary colleagues and to be elected as leader of the Conservative and Unionist Party. Rishi Sunak, the UK's new Prime Minister, is 42 years old. That means he's the youngest Prime Minister in modern times. I've read articles in several different outlets that state this, but none of them stipulate specifically when the modern times began. Most of them go on to point out that the youngest Prime Minister ever was William Pitt the Younger, who became the head of the government when he was just 24. That was in 1783. So I suppose we can safely say that those were the olden days. At some point between now and then, we entered modern times. I've heard or read somewhere that many people experience the day a person younger than them becomes the leader of their country as a major existential event. Sunak is 11 years older than me. At my life stage, that doesn't feel like a very big gap. The Sunak's smart fridge, mattresses and dresses were probably recently sitting in a moving van outside number 10 Downing Street. To the Prime Minister and his family, they may be merely big-ticket home appliances and furnishings. But to me, they serve as memento mori, reminders of the proximity of oblivion. Sunak's not the only reason I've been thinking about death. I've also been spending more time around dead people. I live near a cluster of large cemeteries on the border of Brooklyn and Queens, known as New York's Cemetery Belt. Many of the burial grounds are affiliated with specific ethnic groups that have called the area home, such as Eastern European Jews and German Lutherans. Calvary Cemetery, which is bisected by the Brooklyn Queens Expressway, has nearly three million people buried on its grounds, more than any other cemetery in the USA. I've been going on more long walks and often stroll through these cemeteries. They're among the largest expanses of accessible green space close to me. But that's not the only reason for their appeal. In a city where every inch of ground is jostled over, the dead are among the few New Yorkers who are left in peace. They have a right to permanent internment and can only be removed with the written consent of the lot owners or family. One of the consequences of this is that the city's cemeteries are running out of space. Plots are getting more and more expensive, forcing some who spent their lives in the city to be buried outside the five boroughs. In 2018, Devin Kelly, writing in The Guardian, warned of a forthcoming gentrification of the dead. Donald Trump says you have dementia and it's getting worse. <laughs> hey, the same guy who thought that the 9-11 attack was a 7-11 attack, he's talking about dementia? Joe Biden must have given some thought to his afterlife. 
He turns 80 in November. Well, I'm in good shape. He's the oldest president ever, and the current Congress has the highest average age in the last two decades. You might think the ageing of US politicians simply reflects the ageing of the broader population. But what's weird is that political leaders in other economically advanced countries have been getting younger since the 1950s. That's even though populations are ageing across the rich world. Rishi Sunak becoming Prime Minister is in line with this trend. Are Prime Ministers going to keep getting younger and younger, even as the UK as a whole ages? Might we end up with a William Pitt the even younger, forcing ageing Gen Xers and Millennials to do TikTok dances for benefits? One thing's for sure. We'd be foolish not to at least prepare for such an outcome. That was Henry Ree Sheridan in New York, and that is all for this edition of the Monocle Daily. Thanks to our panellists today, Sarah Churchwell and Somnath Batabayal, also to Carlotta Ribello in Kiev. Today's show was produced by Marcus Hippi and researched by Lillian Fawcett and Emily Sands. Our sound engineer was Steph Chungu, with editing assistance from Tamsin Howard. I'm Andrew Muller here in London. The Daily returns at the same time tomorrow. Thanks for listening. <laughs>